This retired DEA agent was shot in the head while combating heroin suppliers in Afghanistan. His injuries were thought to be not survivable. Though blinded, he lives an inspiring life. He's here to tell us about the incident, his life after, on the Law Enforcement Today show. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from the Detroit area, we have retired DEA agent Joseph Piersanti on the phone, and he prefers to be called Joe. Joe, how are you? Great. How are you doing today? Awesome. I'm very excited to have you here on the show. I, I want people to understand, before we get into Joe's story, there's a saying I use quite often, there are miracles among us, and Joe's one of them. We'll talk about that in a few moments, and you'll understand exactly why. But a, a good colleague, Larry Forletta, who's a retired DEA agent, I had him on a prior episode of the Law Enforcement Today show. He's also a podcaster, private investigator. His podcast is called Forletta Investigates. He said, hey, do you want to have Joe Biersanti on your show? Uh, Joe was a DEA agent who was shot in the head, and no one expected him to survive. And I was like, yes, yes, and yes, make it happen. So I, I appreciate Larry's involvement, and I really appreciate you coming on to tell your story. I appreciate you inviting me on your show. I'm very honored. I don't recall hearing your story. I don't recall hearing on the news. So can we just give people an overview of what happened and how you were injured? Yes. Um, I was a member of DEA's FAST team. that stands for Foreign Deployed Advisory and Support Team. We're kind of like DEA's overseas tactical team. And how it came about is after 9-11, when our U.S. military went over to Afghanistan, we had some intelligence of what was going over there, but we didn't know everything. Um, when the military went over there in short order, they realized the Taliban was getting their funding for their terror activities with the sale of heroin and production of heroin. And a lot of people don't know that Afghanistan is the biggest producer of heroin in the world. So DEA being the drug subject matter experts, the military reached out to us and asked for help. We formed up a team. We had kind of a similar thing in the past called Operation Snowcap, where we went after the drug labs in Colombia and the countries where they produce cocaine. But at the time, we didn't have anything, so we got a team stood up that had to operate with U.S. and coalition special forces and a partner force overseas and provide our expertise in investigations with these um, heroin labs. I know I'm familiar with Snowcap. I remember seeing it on Narcos and other things in television shows, what they did as far as Hollywood presents it. 
However, I didn't really know much about what DEA did in Afghanistan. I understand why you were there. And I, I agree. A lot of people don't know that the number one supplier of, of heroin comes from Afghanistan. But I didn't know that DEA had like a, a tactical team that they sent over there. Yeah, it, it, very few people know. And even some people in our own agency don't even know really much about the team as information is disseminated to the different divisions but a lot of times it didn't get passed down at all and a lot of people think oh well the military goes in there first and they clear and make it safe and you come in no 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 we were up front leading groups in everything and you know right up there in the fight you know taking you know taking rounds and you know fighting it out back there and you know these labs are the Taliban's money, so they're well behind enemy lines most often than not, and they're going to fight like to keep them, but that's where they're getting their money from. So much of what happens, not just internationally, in your case, and we'll get back to that in a minute, but even nationally and locally, a lot of people don't understand what DEA does. And when I say that, it's because I was detailed to DEA in Baltimore for a couple of years, task force, and wound up working all through the state of Maryland into Washington, D.C., and as far down as Miami. But a lot of people really don't comprehend what DEA does and how dangerous it can be because I think we are influenced by Miami Vice and those type of shows. Oh, 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 yeah. In like never in a million years as a DEA agent did I think I would be over there doing what I was doing, you know, operating special forces trained, you know, going through a selection, using all the different military weapons available. I remember coming home um, for my first turn in Afghanistan in 2010, and I had came come from the Phoenix Field Division and telling my buddies in Phoenix, hey, I did this, this, and that over there. They're like, no, you're bull****, Joe, you're lying. I said, I really wish I was, but I'm honest to God telling you the truth. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people don't really understand I know you have different terms, and my department's QRT, quick response team. Some departments are called SWAT teams, and FBI has a different term, and DEA, you guys use the term FAST, F-A-S-T. But it's a tough gig to get that assignment. You've got to really be all in. Those those men and women, they are no jokes. Well, just to give you an example, it's a full voluntary thing, and when the team was going, it's not going anymore was of the drawdown in Afghanistan. But they have tryouts once a year. And you have to be at least a GS-12, so you have to have some investigative experience. And we started, I think, with 36 candidates when I went through selection, and only 11 made it through to the end. So the washout rate is usually well over 50%. Is that because of the physical demands of physical training or mental or both? It's both. Um, When I went through, we had to do like a kind of like IQ psychological test online beforehand. It's a company that U.S. Special Forces uses, and they can get a pretty good idea if somebody's going to make it through a selection or not. So you have that, and then you have the physical aspect. And then you have the thinking on your feet kind of thing. And you have to be able to work well with others, be a team player. Because when we first started, you could get some guys that would fly through all the physical stuff and the military stuff, but they really were kind of jerks. So they couldn't get along with people in a confined space.
space living together overseas, so you could get weeded out for that, too. And just because you make it through all the training doesn't mean you're going to be picked up on a team. Once if you make it through everything, then you're put on a list, and then the team could pick and choose who they wanted from that list. So really, when you, you, you make these teams, you are part of the elite, and a lot of misconceptions, and it's not... I'll defend people right now. It's not their fault that they don't know because no one tells them. The news media doesn't tell them. Hollywood certainly doesn't tell them the truth. And it's not just about federal law enforcement agencies, the DEA in particular, but it's also local, state, county. No one tells these people the truth about what it takes to be a modern-day law enforcement officer. We are talking with Joseph Joe Piersanti, and he is a retired DEA agent. He survived what's often a fatal headshot. He's here to talk about that and more on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show? Never fear. You can sign up for our free email newsletter and get access to past podcast episodes. Plus, all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. We promise we will never spam you. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Joseph Joe Piersanti. Retired DEA agent. Also, he's a motivational speaker, and I'm going to let you in some surprises. I'm not going to spoil it. I hate when people do that. There's some things he's doing now. Number one, we talk about being able to have a conversation with a walking, talking miracle. That's what's happening right now. Number two, what he's done with his life afterwards is nothing short of amazing. Joe, before we went to break, you, you were talking about being part of this fast team or tactical SWAT type team for DEA. You were assigned to Afghanistan. Even a lot of your coworkers didn't know that was going on in DEA. And your mission there was eradicating and investigating large heroin groups that were run by Taliban. Am I correct in that? Yes, you are. That money they were using from sales of heroin was funding terror operations. And you could say there was a direct link to what happened at the World Trade Center and other places. Uh, I know people love to argue that, but we're not going to get into conversation. You were there, and you guys in your training, you were training with special forces. It's not like you had a desk job, did you? No. You know, we were had to learn all these advanced military skills, and a lot of guys on our, our team were former military or they were currently in, you know, the Reserves or National Guard or Reserve Special Ops Unit. And they knew a lot of these military skills. I was on the full-time SWAT team in Detroit for a year, so I was really behind the eight ball. I had to sink or swim. I had to learn these things on the fly, or I wasn't going to make it. So you got to learn all these advanced soldiering skills, per se. And that's something I know nothing about. Uh, And as a matter of fact, people may laugh at this. I remember when I got reassigned from patrol, from uniform patrol, to our district drug enforcement unit, and we're doing drug raids. And there were always high potential for violence. And the amount of training we got for going in the doors and doing stuff amounted about five-minute conversation. That was about it. So you really got thrown in the deep end with all this tactical training and weapons systems, and not just that, but actually techniques and all those things that I know nothing about. 
Yes, we had to learn how to fast rope, repel, the whole nine yards. And I was always a bigger guy, but I was older when I went through. And they're like, hey, you're a big guy. You can carry this belt-fed machine gun. I said, yeah, I'm big and strong, but I'm still old, and that thing is still heavy. <laughs> it's funny the big guys get stuck with the heavy work. And laughingly, because some people think I'm a big guy, that's a struggle to keep weight off at this age. But I always got the, the duty with the ram hitting the door and all that stuff. And it's exhausting carrying heavy equipment. And then you're, you're big, heavy, you know what, everywhere you go. Yes. So here you are learning all this stuff. Let's fast forward to Afghanistan. Uh, you did one tour there and you said you came back home and you were still working with the DEA and then they sent you back again? Yes. And my last tour was 2011. It was mid-summer to late fall tour. So basically it was going to be from end of August to the mid-December. So that was how many months? I'm, I'm not regular about four usually, or five months? Usually four months. Usually, usually 120 days, give or take, plus or minus. And while days. you were there, let's just say out of four months, how many deployments and how many hot zones would you wind up having to go to? Okay. In my two tours in Afghanistan, I was probably on around 50 missions, and there was only six times that I did not have to fire my weapon. Wow. That's intense. That's that's a lot of action. And you were not a military guy. You're a DEA. You're a federal agent. But you're in hot zones all the time. Yeah. And, and believe me, there was times over there with, you know, there's a voluntary unit. Bulls are whizzing behind my head. And I'm like, Joe, what the did you get yourself into? And you started your career yeah. as a street cop. Is that right? Yeah. I was, a, I was a street police officer in Detroit. For four years you know and detroit's no joke either but you know this is a whole other animal here that's what i'm thinking joe i was like look i know i went through a lot of stuff in baltimore i know you went through a lot of stuff in in detroit and sometimes i think that is insurmountable and then i hear stories like what you went through and I'm like man uh, out of 50 deployments there's only six times you didn't have to fire a weapon without going into details that is totally off the chain for what law enforcement officers do you know, you do your shooting report, and, you know, I carried a belt-fed machine gun. How many rounds did you fire? Oh, 600, about around 600 and something. <laughs> wow. And, you see, the media would tell you that, that American police on the street do that every day, and we don't. It's it's very, very rare that you wind up discharging a weapon in the line of duty. So when it does happen, it gets so misconstrued and so misreported that – it doesn't remotely resemble the truth. But one of the things I found really odd, and maybe it's national security stuff or whatever, it's above my pay grade and probably yours as well, is I don't recall hearing about you and the the firefight you're in where you were shot in Afghanistan. I don't, I'm, I'm looking and I see it in news searches now or Google searches, but back then I don't remember it happening. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't hit, you know, the general news media. You know, it was out in, like, law enforcement circles and military special ops circles, you know, but that's it. And there's a lot of stories like me of a lot of heroism and a lot of grave injury that people survived that we don't, we don't even know about. That's the thing. And my wife and I were talking about this the other night. We've been watching a series on Netflix, and, and I hate to give them a plug, but I'm going to give a plug because one of the best shows i've ever seen on netflix is the docudrama medal of honor and it's the stories of medal of honor winners and i'm telling you 
I got emotional through everyone I've been watching. But one of the things she said is something I say all the time. You could be in the grocery store in the checkout line behind someone and not have any idea that that man or woman is a walking, talking hero. And is, and I, I know it's a term people hate to, to hear in, in our line of work. But they've done heroic things and they've put themselves in positions that most people never would dream of doing. Yeah, it, it, and, and I feel the same way, and I tell people the same way. Also, too, it's in life, out there in public, I don't screw with anybody, because you never know what that person's background and skills are. Right. I said, you know, you, you, know, you, you, know, you want to get in this road, road, road rage incident, and this, you know, that person you're messing with, they might be able to kill you seven ways from Sunday. Right. Yeah, we had an old saying, it didn't matter how big, how tough, how strong, how much of a great fighter you may have been or a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master, there's always something crazier, stronger, luckier. And all it takes is hitting the button on your chin and it could be lights out and it could be the end of your life. When we return to our conversation with uh, Joseph Joe Piersanti, retired DE agent, we're going to talk about the tour of duty he was in in Afghanistan, deployed in a tactical mission where he was shot in the head and it was a type of injury that most people do not survive. The most important part about this conversation is his survival, his recovery, and the absolutely amazing things that Joe does with his life today. All people have obstacles in their lives. All people have difficult things they have to deal with and quite often they seem insurmountable. When you hear what Joe has been through, you might find some motivation to help you make it through the stuff you've got to endure. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. conversation with Joseph Joe Piersanti, retired DEA agent, calling us from outside of Detroit, Michigan area. You were assigned the DEA FAST team, a tactical team, in Afghanistan 2011, and always in hot zones. You guys were in a mission that wound up ending with you being severely, severely injured. Tell us what you can about that. Yes. The mission that we went on where I got injured was on Halloween day of 2011. We went with the Australian commandos, which is one of their special forces units, with their Afghan partner force and our Afghan partner force with the FAST team to a bazaar, the Paik Bazaar in nor- northern Helmand, Afghanistan. Helmand province, very hot Taliban activity area and very known for manufacturing heroin. This bazaar is known to sell all kinds of miscellaneous items to include chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, small arms, and improvised explosive device making equipment. So we wanted to go in at night to use our advantage of our night vision and lasers, but we couldn't get a air unit that could fly us at night when the Australians and us could hit this place. So we had to go during the day. We knew we were going to probably meet resistance, but our team that was there before us was there four months before, and they got in a pretty big firefight with the insurgents. So we landed early morning hours on Halloween. We had the Australians provide an outer perimeter for us, 
try to keep the Taliban from moving in on us. And the FAST team and our Afghan partner force were assigned to searching the bazaar. So early morning hours, we land for helicopters, take our positions, move in. As soon as we started moving in, we started receiving some incoming fire, very inaccurate. During a point that morning, I was supervising a search, and I was standing outside of one of the bazaar stalls. I heard a round being fired. It hit an abandoned car behind me, and I felt the back of my neck burn. The bullet got so close to me that I could feel the heat of the bullet. So I kind of had my guard up after that, using all my tactics, techniques, and things I'd learned as a police officer, as a DA agent, and through my training in FAST and FAST missions. We usually can't take all the items we see. We, um, that day we found a lot of poppy seeds to grow opium poppies to manufacture heroin. So we usually take pictures, catalog it, and then destroy it in place. So we were in the process of doing that, and then the Taliban came over their loudspeaker PA system saying, today's your day to die. We must kill the infidels. We must drive them out of our land. So the incoming fire drastically increased on us. We heard the Australians really getting into it with them. We had the Marine Corps Air, Air Wing providing close air support for us. We heard them getting into it. So we did what we had to do, and our helicopters were coming in to pick us up. We start moving out to our locations where we're going to get picked up, four different spots, and we get bogged down in the firefight. So the helicopters can't land. We wave them off. We get in, finally get in position. Helicopters come in, four come in. Three land, one, one does not land. It was Afghan crew and piloted, made them feel comfortable with all the incoming gunfire and dust and the helicopter rotors kicking up so they didn't land. So instead of waiting for theirs to land, they get into the next helicopter over, which was ours, and we run out in the open field, tell them to get off. They're not getting off, and I don't blame them because I don't want to go back into that. So instead of getting shot in that open field, we just tell them to go. So the three helicopters take off, which leaves us um, fast team members and two Australians. We take cover in a ditch. So all the gunfire is focused on us at this point, to include belt-fed automatic machine gun fire. So our helicopter lands a short time away later, about 100 meters away, which is not very far. And I remember getting up to the run and saying, this is going to be a real run. I got bullets popping up all around me. But we can't stay. The longer we stay, the more time they have to amass troops and increase their odds against us. So we got to get out of there. So I remember getting up to run. I remember firing a couple shots on the run towards the insurgents that were shooting at us. I guess I got to the helicopter mid-pack. Everything else is going to be what was told to me after the fact. Once most of my teammates were on or near the helicopter, my team leader said, let's go. I turned left to run on the helicopter, and that's when I got struck in the head in the right temple area, which we believe was the armor-piercing bullet from a PKM belt-fed machine gun. bullet went through my right side of my helmet, through my right temple, through my frontal lobe of my brain, and out my left temple. I fall face forward into the ground. My team leader thinks I might have slipped. He tries to get me up. I'm not moving. He rolls me over and sees there's a hole in my head. They think I'm dead. They pick me up, throw me on the helicopter, and... One of the, our guys feels my chest, and they're like, he's breathing. And 
we are very lucky. We get a lot of advanced medical training on our team. And unfortunately, we have to use it more than we really want. So nobody panicked. Everybody went to work. They got the bleeding stopped. In fact, I woke up when they were doing one of the procedures on me. I don't remember any of this. I wasn't complaining about my head, even though I had a hole on each side. I said, get it out of my eyes. There's a bullet going through my head, didn't hit my eyes. The pressure of the high velocity round going through my head ruptured both eye globes and attached both retinas. And I said, I have to move my leg. So they thought I was shot in the leg too, but what it was is I was been sh- I would been shooting quite a bit, and I had a suppressor on my end of my gun. And when I got knocked unconscious, I laid on my suppressor and it burned inside my left knee pretty good. So they um, got me as stabilized as they could, treated me for shock, got me to the base that we were staying at, Karen Count, brought me to the medical facility there. And I actually got up to walk off the helicopter at that base. What? through the head. Yes. That, I'm telling you I right now, Joe, that would have freaked me out to no end if you got up and tried to walk. If, and then they were like, Joe, no, we got you. We carry you. So they carried me over, put me in the ambulance, brought me to the medical facility, did what they could do for me there, and then had a medical flight take me over to Kandar Airfield with one of my teammates riding with me where they had a neurosurgeon and eye surgeon standing by for me. Some things fell into place that day. It was Halloween. It was a very slow day because there was not a lot of missions going on. I was by the helicopter when I got shot. My teammates were highly trained in battlefield medicine. I had to will to fight and survive. I was in really good shape. And... I give grace and glory to God because in all accounts, 80% of the people who get my injury do not survive. And I should have been dead that day. And God had more for me to do. I've got goosebumps right now. Will you tell me that? Because so many people that had injuries like yours from devastating gunshot wounds to the head. And I'm talking about slower velocity handguns didn't survive. You got hit in the head. It went through a ballistic helmet entered the head, exited the head, and you had severe injuries from a high-velocity machine gun round and survived. That's that not supposed correct. to happen. No, it usually doesn't. I, I'm, I'm a walking miracle, per se. Well, absolutely, you're walking, talking miracle. And, and the truth of the matter is, what I find even more inspiring, and we're going to have to have Joe back because there's, there's not enough time to tell his whole story, is we're going to talk and we return about his recovery process. And when you find out the things he's doing with his life afterwards, if you can't get inspiration out of this, I don't know if there's anything out there that will help you with that. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. We're going to take a short break. I promise you, we'll be right back. We have a new podcast. It's called True Crime Fighters Podcast. Yes, it's another true crime podcast, but a little bit different. There's a huge amount of interest in true crime stories, but very little is told of the heroes that fight horrific crime. 
Whether it be law enforcement officers or everyday citizens, we tell their stories on the True Crime Fighters podcast. Do a Google search for True Crime Fighters podcast, subscribe today, or check us out on Facebook. Do a search for True Crime Fighters. conversation with Joe Piersanti on the Law Enforcement Show, retired DE agent, shot in the head in October, actually Halloween uh, 2011 in Afghanistan, survived. Before we went to break, Joe, you talked about, you're walking, talking miracle, and you are. So you went, you're flown to Kandahar, a lot of things are in your favor. You had a team, they were highly trained. It was a slow day in the medical hospitals there. Surgeons were on standby, ready for you. What was the the amount of injuries you had? The um, my eye lobes were totally both ruptured, and both retinas were detached. Of course, I had a traumatic brain injury with um, brain swelling going on with the bullet going through my head. So they had to address the neurosurgeon had to address me first. They had to get the bleeding and the swelling stopped. So he spent about five hours putting my head back together. Actually removed all the frontal cranial piece, my forehead, that's all titanium now. And once he got that all stable, the eye surgeon came in and she spent almost nine hours piecing my eyes back together with a microscope. Those people are amazing, what they do. Their dedication is absolutely incredible. So in total, you had... I was it 14, 15 hours of surgery? Pretty much that day, yes. And the long-term prognosis, I mean, after Kandahar, I read a little bit of story, they flew you back to the United States and you were resuming your treatment and recovery in U.S., correct? Yes, at the Walter Reed National Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. How long were you there? Two months. And then another month down in the um, McGuire VA down in Richmond. So the end result is that, number one, you survived, but you were left with permanent disabilities. And that's a term I hate because I have a disabling injury, but it doesn't stop me from doing things. Just learn to do things differently. You were left blinded. Yes. Anything else? I mean, traumatic brain injury, loss of eyesight. Well, here's the thing, and it's kind of funny. Your your frontal lobe of your brain your kind of brain filter. It controls your decision-making and all this stuff. And neurosurgeons told my parents, you know, um, his decision-making is going to be way off now. He could just be at work and take all his clothes off and, you know, just lose it. And, you know, and he can never be trusted with a credit card again, ever. My mom's like, well, he didn't have good decision-making to begin with. So he's like, he's going to be just fine. <laughs> We're used to that. Look, I think we had similar childhoods. My parents were blessed with the same kind of guy. You know, once a year, at least once a year, I always go into the emergency room, you know, getting stitches or something, you know. Yeah, that's the way it was for me, too. So maybe that's part of what why you survived. You, you said something earlier that really stuck, and it's, I was trained first day of the police academy, and this, this probably be with me until my last breath. No matter how bad the situation you're in, no matter how badly you're losing, whatever it might be, you got to stay in the fight. You cannot quit. Oh, and that's what I do when I do my motivational talking. You, you got to have that mindset, that mentality, no matter what. If you're in a fight for your life, if you're injured and you're fighting for your life because of that, I always tell people, you always, always have to stay in the fight. You have to scratch, claw, 
do whatever you have to do to win that fight and have that mindset. I will not lose. I will not die. I will not defeat, be defeated. I will win. You have to have that mentality. And you're a great example of that because so many other people would have not had that desire to continue on. Because well, you, you had a tough people, battle. They get, they'll get shot in the pinky toe and die. They're going to shock. Yeah. But here you are. And long story short, you, you had to learn how to create a new life for yourself after these devastating injuries. Yeah, to learn how to do everything. I had to learn how to swallow again. I was in a induced coma with a feeding tube. I had to learn how to put my clothes on, to walk around in a blind world. You know, basically start over from, you know, scratch and a lot of things. By the way, I, I got to flash back. The, the decision-making and he talked about he never, can never be trusted with a credit card again. You've obviously learned how to be okay with that. Yes, it, it, that part didn't affect, you, affect me as much as they thought it may, which I'm very blessed because of that. But you've got some determination, some you're a motivational speaker now. You've got some things that you've been doing that quite honestly, 99.9% of the American population or worldwide population that have all their faculties could never do. You are a competitive bodybuilder. Yes, I'm um, a top national level guy. I'm a top five guy. I'm top five in the world as a super heavyweight masters bodybuilder. Um, I just won uh, the Mr. Michigan competition. I'm getting ready for the Masters Nationals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on July 22nd. And I should be able to turn pro. And I'm not going to say if, I'm going to say when I turn pro there, I'll be the first blind IFEV men's pro bodybuilder in history. First of all, anybody that achieves that goal, my hat's off to them. And I'm not saying it lightly i used to be a gym rat i used to really want to to be in shape and i tried the bodybuilding part of it and the truth is i don't have the commitment to things like diet sleep exercise the routine it requires a total commitment to this lifestyle so you didn't stumble this by accident it's a decision you make every day yes it, it that's a, you know it's a lifestyle and you got to be committed to it but I'm a kind of person that likes to be focused and likes to have a regimented lifestyle. And I love to compete. And I love to go to the highest level of anything I've ever done. I played football through college. Any job I've had, I tried to get to the top. And for me, this is something I still can do and be competitive. And it's something that makes me feel normal again. Because it's something I did when I could see. And the really amazing thing about this, not just the fact that you're you're blind, that you accomplished this goal, not just the fact that you overcame a devastating injury, head wound, which killed most people, is you're doing this at the age of someone who's in your early 50s? Yes, I'm, yes, I'm 51 years old, and I'll go to these local shows, and I'll beat all the youngsters, too, <laughs> the 20, 30-year-olds. Something tells me that there's part of your character and your personality that I, I was blessed, they say, as an Irish Catholic kid with a huge amount of stubbornness, persistence, and refusal to give up. Something tells me that you have some of the same traits. Oh, oh, oh yes. And I think and those are some of the reasons I lived, too, because I didn't want to die. 
I think that's important. Even knocked unconscious yeah. subconsciously. I wasn't going to die. Was there a point when you went through this where you thought this is the end for me, and you said, "Heck no, I'm not going." No, I didn't see any bright light. None, none of that. It just tell people it wasn't my time. And not only do I do the bodybuilding stuff, I hunt and shoot blind with special equipment. I've been tandem skydive jumping blind. The sky's the limit. 5K races I've ran. You know, you name it, I'll try it. Joe, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not doing any of that stuff. Uh, I'm not jumping out of a perfectly working airplane. You're a motivational speaker. We're almost out of time. Where can people get more information about you and maybe book you to speak in front of their group? Okay, um, I have on LinkedIn under my name, Joe, J-O-E-P-I-E-R-S-A-N-T-E. I'm on LinkedIn. It's got a lot of my videos and a lot of things on there. You can also email me directly. It's my name, J-O-E-P-I-E-R-S-A-N-T-E at yahoo.com. And you can um, inquire about me coming out and speaking. I speak to all kinds of different groups, not only law enforcement, military, business businesses, schools, sports teams, you name it. If you want to hear me run my mouth, I'll be there. And Joe, if anybody is interested in getting a hold of him, you just contact me and I will do an email introduction. Joe, number one, thanks so much for your service and thanks so much for coming on the show, telling us all about your, your recovery and we will definitely have to have you back. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.